Welcome to Judaism Demystified, a podcast for the perplexed. We are rejoined by Rabbi Dr. Joshua Berman. Dr. Berman is a professor of Bible at Bar-Ilan University. He is known for his views on the history of Jewish belief and on biblical source criticism, arguing that knowledge of the cultural context of the ancient Near East is required in understanding the scriptures. He earned his A.B. at Princeton University in 1987 and his Ph.D. at Bar-Ilan University in 2002. He's also an Orthodox rabbi and studied at Yeshivat Haritzion for eight years and taught Bible at the Nishmat Midrashah for several years. He's a frequent contributor to the Times of Israel and his articles on biblical theology and contemporary society have appeared in the pages of Mosaic Magazine and the Wall Street Journal. Rabbi Dr. Berman served as a member of the International Advisory Board for the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. Without further ado, Rabbi Dr. Joshua Berman. Thank you for rejoining the Judaism Demystified podcast. Professor Berman, we just want to say thank you because you are one of the people who started out our podcast, you know, you took a risk with these guys who are no names <laughs> and uh, you really, you know, it's one of our most talked about episodes. So we really want to thank you. Well, you know, you see big heart and, and you know, tremendous uh, desire to do things with Shem Shemayim. It's, uh, it's very hard to say no. So it was a real pleasure and I'm, I'm thrilled to be back. Thank you so much. And uh, so I want to get into the topic of today, which is Lamentations, your new book, but mainly I want to understand why you chose to write this book. Okay. So I'll give you, uh, I'll give you two types of answers. Okay. So this, the, the, this book, it's got a very kind of very part of title, the book of lamentations. It's part of a, of, of an academic series. In other words, publishers have series on the, on the entirety of Tanakh and each volume is another book of Tanakh. So this is the Echa volume, lamentations volume of a series called the new Cambridge Bible commentary put out by Cambridge University Press, but it's entirely accessible to anybody listening to this to this program. Some you know might discuss some issues or footnotes that you're not you know accustomed to necessarily, but nobody would have any difficulty following the argumentation, the use of language, etc. Um, uh, so one answer is that I was approached by the series editor, and he asked me if I would write uh, of the volume for the series on Ezra Nehemiah. But I'm afraid, I, I don't fully understand Ezra Nehemia. So with real chutzpah, I said to him, how about Eicha? And he said, okay, you can write on Eicha. So that, that's one answer. That's not the answer you were looking for, though. So I'll, I'll say to you, Ben, that um, for, for almost 30 years, I've had a dream of writing a commentary on Eicha. Because I, I, I remember about 30 years ago trying to just learn the safer for myself. You know, not just one sitting on the floor on Tisha above night, but like, let's go through this. What is going on here? And it occurred to me that there's something far richer than what we normally assume, which we'll get into in, into in a moment. You know, what are our assumptions when we're reading Eicha about what this is about? Uh, and that this is like really, really cool. And if I could have one day the opportunity to write up a, a whole commentary with a whole mahala, a whole approach to what is Eicha, what is it trying to do? Uh, what are its different parts? How does it hold together? So this is kind of a dream come true. Fantastic. And we're so happy to be uh, having this conversation right now. So I want to get right into it. What is Lamentations? Who is its audience? And what is its purpose according to scholars and Chazal? Okay, good. So let's start with what I think is probably the most intuitive answer uh, to people who are listening to this podcast, who probably 
you know, are in shul tisha above night and sitting on the floor and, and reading it. Uh, Chazal, whenever they speak about Eicha, they don't call it Eicha. They call it Kinot. That's that's the name for this 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 sefer, this book in Chazal. It's not even a Megillah. It's Kinot. Kinot. Now, what does that mean, Kinot? Well, when we think that it's Kinot, so then we think, oh, so it's basically uh, uh, of the same genre, the same type, the same sort of writing as the rest of the keynote that we have on Tishabov. That is to say, what we have here is someone or some community that is expressing its woe and its sorrow following a terrible you know, communal calamity. Uh, if in the rest of keynotes we get a little bit of that, let's say about you know the Middle Ages and then the Crusades. So these are keynotes, undifferenti undifferentiated, exactly the same as the later keynote. Just these are like the first five of all the keynotes that we're going to be reading on, on Tisha B'Av. An expression of woe and sorrow, a little bit of tefillah, maybe a little bit of protest here and there. Uh, but that's basically, that's how, that's how uh, Chazal understood it. And you can see even the, uh, you know, the, the non-Jewish name for the book, Lamentations, a lament, oi, 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 expressing, you know, just like many of us, maybe perhaps if we've undergone something terribly difficult, sometimes we will write poetry to like get it out. And that's, that's kind of, that's how, that's I think how, how most traditional Jews have, have apprehended this. And we are, as it were, joining in the expression of woe and, 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 and despair uh, even though we weren't there, but these are events that are part of our collective identity and collective memory. And so we too are going to join in the mourning and the, and, uh, the anguish uh, over the loss, the destruction of the Mikdash, the destruction of Yerushalayim, by sitting on the floor and us as well saying these same keynotes, and this is the traditional way of looking at things, uh, together with the rest of Klai Yisrael across all of, all of the generations. That's the, uh, that's the classical way of looking at it. Now, what that is how Chazal looked at it. I think probably also uh, many early figures. Again, if we have the name Lamentations, we didn't give that name to it. That's you know that's what maybe the Church Fathers also called it. They also understood it in that way. But modern scholars, and this has nothing to do with Kira or sources or the origin. Is it divine or not? Just they're just reading the story and they're saying, you know, it doesn't all look entirely like lament. Um, in fact, what we find is that Eicha has like seems to have many different many different opinions and voices, uh, and they don't all seem to really hold together. Let me let me give an example of what I mean. Uh, we have a pasuk in uh, uh, in Perik in, uh, 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 in in Perik Aleph uh, where uh, the, the the Megillah. We'll just call it for that for the meantime. The Megillah says in Perik Aleph in pasuk Yudchet. Hashem is righteous because I have rebelled against his word. That sounds pretty firm, pretty pietistic. Sounds like, you know, someone, whoever's saying this, uh, has recognized her sin. If it's, you know, Batsion, the collective representation of Am Yisrael, maybe it's the community as a whole. That sounds pretty pious. And then you come to, uh, uh, to Perak Bet, and we have a voice that says to Hashem about the children of Batsion, basically the residents of Yerushalayim who perished, Harakta biyom apecha. You killed them in the day of your anger. Tavachta lo chamalta. You slaughtered them. You had no pity. Well, wait a minute. Didn't we just say in Parakalif, Sadiku Hashem, Kifihu Mariti, God is righteous, for I have 
I have uh, rebelled against his words. So which is it? What's going on here? It seems a little schizophrenic. And the truth is, is that you have many different seemingly voices and opinions. There are other things that are that are problematic here. You have like in Perak Gimel, which is the longest Perak in Achav, uh, at least by by verse numbers. It's the 66 verses there. And you have this guy. It starts off, Ani Hagever. I am the man. Who? Who are you? What, what man is this? In fact, if you were to read through all of Paragimel, you would be hard put to identify Paragimel as having any, anything to do with the Chorban, per se. There's almost no mention of anything in there that you can say, yes, you can see right here he's talking about the Chorban. We wanted to have sook in. But most of it seems to be some just guy talking about personal troubles that he's had. So what is all this doing here? And so what, what, when, what many scholars have said, it's also extremely difficult to see does the Megillah have a beginning, a middle, an end? Uh, you know, there's maybe a pasuk or two of Nechama at the end of Perak Dalid when when uh, when uh, uh, we read Tam Avonech Batzion, your 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 iniquity or maybe your punishment has ended. But that's that's in Perak Dalid, not not where we would expect it. You know, usually if there's going to be even one verse of Nechama, no, it should be at the end. Um, um, and Perakay Bichlal is a whole tefillah. So a lot of scholars say, you know. This is a mess. There's really no order. There is no order in Echa. What is Echa then? Echa, by almost all modern scholars, I'm saying in the last 30 years, that have tried to make sense of this book, have said, look, the, the destruction of Yushalayim for the inhabitants of Yushalayim was clearly a cataclysmic event. And many different people came to many different conclusions. Just like, we might say, you know, we know after the Shoah, I'm not even talking about the people that left, you know, uh, from Kite or, or, you know, dropped all belief without, you know, obviously rendering any judgment on such people. But even if you were to speak to 10 Jews who after the Shalab remained, you know, Shomer Shabbos and Shomer Kashrus, and you were to ask them, so, no, what do you do with all this? How do you process it theologically? You're likely to get 10 different answers. Okay. And so what scholars say is what we have here in Echa is just one cacophony of many different viewpoints and many, many voices that are speaking, each one with their own thoughts about what has happened and where is God and, 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 and uh, what, how are we supposed to understand what has just happened to us. That is the prevailing view today, certainly in scholarship. And I think that was all totally off base. I'll tell you, I'll tell you the primary reason why I think that it's off base. Um, I don't think that any safer works that way, where the author doesn't have a, a, an opinion his, of himself. But also you can see it is clear that Eicha is an extremely well-structured work. All of us have probably noticed that uh, the first two, pro this, uh, first, uh, the, first, the first four prakim actually, are acrostics. That means the first pasuk begins with Aleph, right? Eicha yashva the second pasuk begins with a bet, right? The third pasuk begins with a gimel. And there's 20, 22 psukim connected to, you know, the, the whole Aleph base. That's Perak Aleph and Perak Bet's that way. Perak Gimel is a triple and Perak Dalit is that way as well. Well, that certainly suggests that the author seems to see order. And I'll say something even more, even deeper than that. I don't think I mentioned this in the introduction. And that is that, that, that the first two prakim of Echa, each one separately, makes an enormously beautiful and precise chiastic structure. What do I mean by that? By that, I mean that 
we have in Perak Aleph, just as an example, we have a word in the first pasuk, and that word is repeated in the last pasuk. So the word Rabbah, like Ishvaya, the populous city, Rabbatian. And in the last pasuk, pasuk Hafbet, she says, Rabot Anchotai, many are my travails, and my heart is woe. So you have there the same word in the first pasuk and the last pasuk. And if you check carefully, you will see you have a word in the second pasuk, which you find in the second to last pasuk, and you have a word in the third pasuk, which you find in the third to last pasuk, all the way through. And that's true in Prakim Aleph the Bet. I don't think you have another parak in all of Tanakh, which is a perfect acrostic, Aleph Bet Gimel Dalit, and fully chiastic in that way. This is super structured. So to say that the form, just kind of like, you know, the cutesy stuff on the side, oh, that was all very perfectly structured, but then say, but the content, that's eh, just a mumble jumble, which is really what scholars say. No, don't buy it. Oh. Guys, work harder. Got to work harder. <laughs> that's it. I actually wonder, like, when scholars are looking at that, I mean, when you see a chiastic, I mean, did they just not see a chiastic structure or do they just kind of see it but ignore it? How does that work? Because it's like... It's yeah, they ignore it. They, they, I think they think it's not true, the chiastic structure. Oh. Yeah, I don't know why. Blows me away. Yeah. Okay, so... so all right, so you are pointing towards... Um, you are you are agreeing with the fact that there's a multiplicity of voices. Yep. You want to contend yep. with that. But the drawback of just leaving it as that is that they're not seeing the structure that is, you know, inherent within. Right. And, and, and there's no one coherent voice. I'll tell you, I think a lot of a lot of scholars are drawn to this because of the postmodern moment that we live in. In other words, yeah, there's no one truth. You know, there's lots of opinions. And uh, probably the author of Eicha, by what they're saying, was a postmodernist. But I don't think postmodernism existed back then. So I don't think I think, so you, I don't think, I think you mentioned this in the introduction. You mentioned the postmodernism. Yeah. Uh -huh. That's right. Okay, so if we were to come to start to understand how to read this text properly, what is the proper departure point for understanding okay. the systematic fashion? Right. Which, which okay, so, so for me, the thing that we all need to, to take note of, it's not hard, you start to go through it, you notice it right away, is that we clearly have different characters and voices within Eicha. What do I mean? Probably your Eicha, just like mine, it doesn't look like a, a, a script of, of, of Shakespeare. It doesn't tell you who's speaking, but you can tell. We have one character who, who whenever that person speaks, is speaking about Yerushalayim, of Yerushalayim, in the third person, as we have in the opening Pasuk of the Megillah, Eicha Yashva Badad. Oh, or how does she sit alone? Here is someone speaking of Batsion, of the, the collective figure of the remnants of Yerushalayim. He is speaking about Yerushalayim. Okay? And then we have uh, many other Tzukim, which are, which are speaking about Yerushalayim, but not in the third person, but in the first person. So, for example, uh, 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 in Perak Aleph, Pasuk Tetzayim, Al ele ani bochia. About these, I am, I am crying. Eni, eni yorda mayim. Water or tears are streaking down my, 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 my cheeks. And so we have here clearly many psukim that are in the third person. That seems to be a narrator, and I'll speak more about that narrator's function in a minute. And then the first person 
He's speaking about Yerushalayim, and then we have about you. He's we have Yerushalayim herself speaking. The figure that in the Megillah is called Batsion, and they are in dialogue. The way I know that they're in dialogue is because we actually have many psukim where someone turns to another one in second person. So, for example, in Perak Bet, uh, maybe the most well-known pasuk to us because of uh, Shlomo Kalbach, Shivchi Kamayim Libech. You have someone turning to Batsion and telling her to pour out her heart. Or when this narrator says to her, also in Parakbet, Kigadol Kayam Shivrech, your travails are as, are as great as the ocean, me your palach, who could possibly heal you? Okay? So the thing that would, the, the basic starting point is that we need to understand Eicha as a running discussion between two figures, a narrator and Batsion herself. So now the question is, what more can we say about these two figures? Okay. So I want to say the following. Let me back up a little bit to things that happened before the Megillah, i.e. during the period of Yirmiyahu, and then that'll help us understand uh, to understand who are these two characters here in the Megillah. So uh, I'm sure all of us, whether you ever took a course in Sefer Yirmiyahu or you just read them, you know, in the Hasturot and Shabbat, we all are familiar with the notion that Yirmiyahu was not a popular guy in the period, in the run-up to the Chorban. That he would, you know, try to relay his take on things as he received them from HaKadosh Baruch Hu, And for the most part, the populace of Yerushalayim scorned him and didn't accept the thing that he said. Okay? And uh, they were certain that things would be otherwise. Um, they believed in what we call Zion theology. What does that mean? Hashem loves us. Hashem loves the people of Zion. He loves the Beis HaMikdash of Zion. He loves the city of Zion. He loves the Davidic king in Zion. This is what it means to be a firm Jew. To be a firm Jew means to believe those things. The love that the Rebbe Shalom has for all of us, and anyone that questions the love that the Rebbe Shalom has for us is a heretic, and therefore Yirmiyahu is a heretic. The most shocking thing, to my mind, not only in Sefer Yirmiyahu, the most shocking thing in the entire Tanakh, for me, personally, is what I would call the chapter that never took place. That is, that after the Chorban, when everything that Yirmiyahu said came true, we would have expected that the people would then come to Yirmiyahu and say, oh, Yirmiyahu, you were right, and we were wrong. And Ashamnu, Bagadnu, Gazalnu, Dibarnu Dofi, or something like that, you know, a vidui. And it never happens. It never happens. Worse, they come to him and they scorn him. And then we have that the Gedalia is put into is put into place, and loyalists to the king who can't fathom the notion of someone not from Malchus based David come along and kill him. Put differently, even after the Khurban. Nothing has changed for Batsiyon. Nothing has changed for the people of Yerushalayim. They are still ensconced in their opinion that a Kaddish Baruch Hu loves them. And he loves Yerushalayim. And he loves the Beis HaMikdash. If that sounds, but that's crazy. How could you possibly say that, Berman? How? What, what do you mean? Uh, didn't they have eyes? Couldn't they see that, that a Chorban had taken place? And here, this is, friends, where, where what, what we see in the world around us today is so illustrative. Because think of the following, friends. Think of the following, the following phenomenon, because they're all related. They're all expressions of the same thing. Uh, Holocaust denial, uh, denial about climate change. Though I don't know, on a day like today, it's so hot here. I don't know how anybody could deny climate change. 
from what I understand, it's almost no different, almost no, no matter where you're hearing this podcast from on the face of the earth. But there are plenty of people who will deny climate change has nothing to do with carbon emissions, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Anti-vaxxers, uh, people who claim that, that the election in 2020, the U.S. presidential elections were stolen. What all these have in common is that people who have these beliefs garnished health in, as they say in Yiddish. Nothing will ever budge them from what they from what they are believing. It isn't as though if you bring yet, you know, let me bring another proof from science, you know, about that, that vaccinations against uh, against COVID uh, are not dangerous. Or let me let me just you know dig up some more remains from Sobibor as they're trying to do now. You know, the kind of the, the, the extermination camp. I, I heard a, an archaeologist there recently who's working there. He says, here, these 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 things that we have found with people's names and stuff. This is what will demonstrate so that nobody will ever be able to say it didn't happen. Sorry, people will continue to say that it didn't happen. What is this? What all these things, they all they're all described by social psychologists as expressions of what they call belief persistence. This is when you have a community of people that latches on to a certain sense of reality, certain depiction of reality that is totally cut off from any empirical truth, that no amounts of proof will move them from where they are. Because were people who did, did, did deny the Holocaust to have to admit that there was such a thing, or any of the other examples that I gave, apparently it would undermine something deeply core to their collective identity. And so there's no seeing the truth, no hearing the truth, no speaking the truth. This is the problem of Batsyon. Batsyon, the collective remnant of Yerushalayim, after the Chorban, has not changed one iota. Because it's too easy for her to remain where she is. Either it was a Chorban, or Bershom had a bad day. He was out to lunch. <laughs> On that day, the babbling was stronger. But he loves us. He absolutely loves us. And they want to hold on to that. It's comforting. Not only that, it makes life easy for them. Nothing has to change. Just the Kodesh Baruch has to keep up his end of the deal. They don't have to change. Right. Right. This is where Eicha begins. Yirmiyahu can't countenance that. And so in Eicha, we have two figures. There is the narrator, because he's never named. Okay, that's why I'm using that term. Okay, there is the narrator. And we'll discuss, you know, Yirmiyahu, we can discuss that in a second. But I'm just working with what is within the text itself. Okay, there is a narrator. And this is somebody who apparently has exactly the hashkafa that Yirmiyahu did. This is someone who can be critical of Am Yisrael, but also supportive of Am Yisrael. And the role of the narrator in dialogue with Batsion is, I would say, almost like a counselor involved in therapy with a client. The narrator sees his job as taking Batsion and awakening her from her la-la land, her view of the Ribbono Shalom as Santa Claus as the smiling grandfather in the sky, who just loves us and loves Tzion and loves the Beis HaMikdash and loves Malchus Beis David. The problem is going to be, as, as often is the case in a therapy setting, when people have big delusions that they're using to help shield them from the painful things in reality, is that when they are awoken to the reality, it is shattering, it is painful. And this is what ultimately will happen to Bat Sion. Once she realizes, oh my gosh, the Rebona Shalom is really angry with me. He doesn't love me. He doesn't love Malchus Beit David. And he doesn't love Yerushalayim. Well, that's, he did all this? All this suffering? All these starving children are from him? 
Whew. So it's totally shattering, and the narrator has to help her pick up the pieces. What I see happening in Eicha is a series of dialogues around those themes, getting her to realize the truth and then helping her pick up the pieces. That's the opening gambit. So who who do you feel is the narrator of the text? Okay, so so there's 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 two questions. There's who is the author of Eicha and who is the narrator? Okay. So there so obviously Chazal said that this was both, I guess, really. Uh, certainly the author was Yirmiyahu, and maybe also the narrator, the guy who is saying, Eicha Yashvavadad, you know, how is how is or whoa, the city sits alone, that that was Yirmiyahu. So modern scholars say the following. They say, look, look, Eicha doesn't say one way or the other who its author was. It also does not identify the narrator, per se. And some say, look, you know, you have so many opinions in Eicha that don't sound like Yirmiyahu, like one of the ones that I said before. Can we imagine Eicha? Can we, excuse me, can we imagine uh, Yirmiyahu saying to the Ribbonu Shalom, you killed my children on the day of your wrath. You slaughtered them. You had no mercy. That doesn't sound like Yirmiyam. So a lot of scholars say, listen, we have too many psukim in this, in this text that just don't sound like Yirmiyam. And so they are a little bit reluctant to say that it was Yirmiyam. They also say, look, when we read the, the, the book of Yirmiyam, what we see is that by the end of the book, Yirmiyam is in Egypt. He goes down to Mitzrayim with everybody else. Never says that he came back. Doesn't say, doesn't say that he died there. We just don't get the end of Yirmiyahu's life. To which I say the following. Yes, it is true. We have many tzukim in Eicha that don't sound like Yirmiyahu that we know from his Sefer. But when you see, when you break apart the Megillah the way I said, look who is speaking about Yerushalayim in the third person and look who is speaking about Yerushalayim as her own self, then what you will notice is that all of the psukim that don't sound like Yirmiyahu are Batsion. That's Yerushalayim speaking. And that all the psukim that are the narrator, this kind of mentor, this kind of pastoral, you know, communal rabbi who's trying to, you know, work with someone in the community who's having a difficult time, you know, get her to wake up and realize things, help her through her difficult crises, all of those psukim fit beautifully with Yirmiyahu. So I say the following. Um, Chazal told us in Yirmiyahu, I have no reason necessarily to deny that. Okay? But I will say that even if it was not Yirmiyahu that wrote this, it is clear that the author of Eichav wants Batsion to see the narrator as someone who just happens to have exactly the hashkafa of Yirmiyahu and I would say also the gravitas and the authority that he had as well. So if it isn't Yirmiyahu, then it's a made-up figure that's pretty close to Yirmiyahu. That's what I would say. Almost like speaking for Yirmiyahu. Yeah. 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 This is what Yirmiyahu might have said. Presenting yeah. Yirmiyahu to a certain extent. Yeah. 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 All right. And um, towards the latter half of your introduction, when you start to piece together uh, the whole picture, you speak about collective trauma theory. Can you right. discuss collective trauma theory and how you apply that into, into? Okay, okay, okay. Here, let me, let me, let me, uh, let me, because that all sounds very academic. Let me, let me, let me give a very tachlis, shocking example, okay, of what I'm talking about here. If I were to say to you, and ask you a question, it's going to sound absurd, okay, a really absurd question. 
Jews that came over from Europe after the war, okay, let's say to the U.S., okay, who had endured the war in Europe. Um, when did those people become survivors? And you say, what a silly question. What does that mean even? I don't know. I mean, what, what answer could one possibly give to such an absurd question? Well, Maybe it would, they when they're recognized survive. as such, I mean, in, in when they're recognized as such, if you're not recognized as a survivor, okay. then you're then you're essentially you're you're a survivor maybe within yourself, but not within the people. Okay, okay, that's one that's one answer. Consider this thing. Um, um, you know, you might have, I don't know, maybe they became survivors the day the war ended. Maybe they became survivors whenever their particular area of Europe was liberated. Maybe they became survivors when they arrived, you know, at, 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 on safe shores. Well, who cares? I mean, they're survivors, right? That's that's the main thing. These people were survivors, and I will tell you, they became survivors. In 1979, they said, whoa, what does that mean? So here's what I mean. People that came over after the war, the people in the U.S. had many different types of names for them. Sometimes they were called immigrants. Sometimes mm -hmm. they were called refugees. Sometimes they were called displaced persons. In Yiddish, they were called greenen, you know, like greenhorns, like greenies, like newbies, kind of, in our, in our modern parlance. They were never called survivors, never, in the 40s and 50s, never. And that's shocking to us, because if I were to ask you, what do you call someone who endured the war, you would say, that's a survivor. That's the only Lashon that we use today, that they are survivors. So what do I mean that it changed in 1979? So here's, here's what changed, okay? In 1976, those of us of a certain age will recall, 77, there was a, a blockbuster TV series back in the day when there was such a thing called TV, you know, that we all watched because there was nothing else. So everybody watched TV called Roots. Roots was about, you know, the history of a black family from slavery through through uh, uh, liberation and, and, and on for the next century. It kind of traced ethnicity and made ethnicity cool for the first time. And then once that was done already for blacks and black history as slaves, well, soon the Jews got on the boat and said, oh, well, we have a history too. Here, we're going to make this blockbuster series called Holocaust, which appeared in the late 70s in the United States, okay, as a movie. It was like a four, five, it was like, you know, the whole country watched Holocaust for like a four or five consecutive nights. Now suddenly, whoa, this whole story of bearing witness and telling about the events that happened took on an entirely new, new, uh, new color. When Jews first came over, after the war, nobody wanted to hear their stories. It was like, okay, folks, you're here. All right, get with the program. Become American and fast. There was no Yom HaShoah. There was no Holocaust remembrance. There were no Holocaust chairs in any universities. It was just not talked about, not even within the Jewish community. Well, but by the late 70s, this was like really important. And this is where, you know, today the term survivor, when there's so few of them left, you know, is charged almost like these people have like like an aura of kedusha to them just by virtue of what they went through. You know, we have such like reverence for them. That's all something that changed over time. And this is what I mean about trauma theory. That that you know the, the facts themselves of what people endured all then gets shaped and is processed in different ways. Mm -hmm. Early on, when the people came over, when the Jewish community in the United States wasn't as strong as it was today, it was like okay, just. Let's not talk about that and just kind of get, get American as quickly as you can. You are an immigrant. You're a displaced person. You're a refugee. You know, there's nothing special about you. 
And we're not going to celebrate you. We're not going to put you on a special pedestal. But by the late 70s, all of that is now, whoa, no, you know, trauma is something that the community holds on to. And it makes a story of heroism about it. I mean, just the word survivor, you know, the words like survivor, you know, like, you know, the, the, the TV series survivor, you know, gritty and determination. You know, those are all the, the, the things that are laden into this term when we say a Holocaust survivor. It was their spirit. They, 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 they had grit, determination. They had, they had the Masora or the faith on the, all those things. Those are not all given. That was all constructs that we, that we added to them from the late 70s. So what we see from this little lesson here about just the very language that we all use today is that, that communal uh, catastrophe gets shaped and molded in different ways at different times. Elie Wiesel was the one who basically brought to the fore the notion of bearing witness. This is important to tell these stories. Well, his, his initial book, 1960, before 1960, nobody talked about the Holocaust, really nobody, okay? Now, now we come back to, uh, uh, you know, maybe the first Shoah, as it were, the Chorban, right? Chorban Bayit Rishon. And the question is, after, after, the, after the Chorban, what do we make of what happened? What's the narrative that we tell ourselves? So one narrative might be just like the first time that Batsion speaks, you know, this collective personality uh, of Yerushalayim, the first time she speaks, the first time we hear her, actually shows just how off her interpretation of events really was. She says to Hashem something so simple, something so pietistic, something that would be so easily part of our Tehillim if, you know, if Rahman al-Islan, something bad happens to the Jewish people today. She says, Re'ei Hashem et onyi. Oh, behold the Kaddish Baruch Hu, my, my, my suffering. He higdil oyev. Because the, the enemy has triumphed. That is her take on the Chorban. You have to look at me. You have not noticed me. You've been out to lunch. Okay, you've been away. I want you to notice me. And look what's happened here. He's Diloyev. The enemy has triumphed. That's the Chorban. The Babylonians were strong. That's how she sees it. That is totally off. Yes, the Babylonians were strong. But she doesn't see this is all from Shemayim. She doesn't see that it's her own actions that led a Kaddish Baruch to do this, okay? So what I see Eicha as, as a remolding of what, what the Chorban was all about, it is literally staged. It is a play. It is a play with two characters, this narrator and Batsion. And what the author of Eicha is doing is putting on a production for the purpose, for the benefit of the, the, the Toshavei Yerushalayim, the inhabitants of Yerushalayim, after the Chorban, under occupation, reeling from destruction, as to how they're supposed to view or how they're supposed to make the move from being ensconced in their previous la-la land of Zion theology, stuck in belief persistence, I have my beliefs and they're always going to be true, to shatter those, and then to show models of how your meow the pastoral mentor, the narrator, brings Batsion through several discussions to see things the right way. And in my mind, what we have here, the reason there are several discussions, there's several praki, is because Batsion is really not one single character. Batsion is always the, the, I would say, the survivors of the Chorban. But we know from our own, our own experience 
the survivors of the Shoah, even those that continued to, to adhere to the Masorah, had different views about this. And so each parak takes a different religious typology and shows how Yirmiyahu works with her. Okay, so that would lead into um, to the to the last question regarding: Can you go through the structure of the of the five prakim, um, how they kind of flow into each other, or how how it, how it bounces off each other? And um, based on what you said, so so lamentations is really contextualized to to would be the the generation after the the destruction sixth century. Okay. We're going to talk. And and so just to kind of sum up what you said to make sure I understood it, um, Batsion is really a conglomerate of voices that was expressed at that time. And the yep. narrator is going to uh, contend, deal with um, each of those voices and try yep. to uh, yep. educate those, those yep. voices. Yeah, yeah. So let me... Yeah, instead of maybe going through all five prakim, which will be a little bit difficult in the time we have, let me let me just show how this works within a single parak. Sure. Okay? Absolutely. Okay. So in parak bet, in parak bet, what we have is that the first half of the parak, only the narrator speaks. And what he does is he shows no less than 27 ways in which a Kaddish who boom, bam, bash, destroyed, obliterated everything having to do with Rushalayim. And he does it repeatedly by using the lishonot chiba, the kind of the, the terms of endearment with which Yerushalayim thought about herself. Let me explain what I mean. For example, in Pasuk Aleph of Perak Bet, what did Hashem do? He shlich mishamayim eretz. He threw down from the heavens to the earth tif eret Israel, the glory of Israel. Right, that's in her own eyes, the glory of Israel, or the low Zachar Hadom Raglav, the Yomapo, and he didn't remember his footstool, i.e., the base of Mikdash. That's how Batsion viewed the base of Mikdash. This is a Kurdish Baruch's footstool. He's not going to destroy it. And so Yumiyao is expressing himself in the ways in which Batsion had thought of Hashem, had thought of Yerushalayim, and had thought of the Mikdash. As if all to say, this is not because Hashem was out to lunch, and it's not because the Bablim were stronger that day. Everything that happened, Hashem was there and doing it, and it's not the Babu. He doesn't mention the Babu anywhere. In fact, he says that Hashem is the Oyev. He says, Darach Kashroke Oyev. He he pulled his bow like like a like like an enemy, like the Oyev. Uh uh Oyev Bila Yisrael, like an enemy. He swallowed up Israel. All of this is to say to Bachion, I'm grabbing you by the lapel, and I want you to understand God did this. He did this to you. And he did this in spite of all the ways in which you think that he'd love you. Well, when Batsion hears that, I mean, imagine. I mean, imagine how shattering that is. I'll say here that, that I, uh, I, I, I recall, in order to understand how Batsion might feel about this, I was once, I'll tell you a story. I was once at an academic conference. I was at a dinner. And there were two Bible scholars engaged in a conversation. One says to the other, you know, let me tell you something. I don't believe in God. And the other Bible scholar says, mm, you know what? Me either. And the first one says, I'll tell you something else. If I did believe in God, I would be very angry at him. And the second guy says, yeah, me too. Okay. And from this, uh, uh, I learned something that I later discovered that, that psychologists of religion have known. 
a study once done of patients loalenu in a hospital ward for chronic pain. And they were discover they were trying to assess the religious attitudes of patients suffering from chronic pain all the time. Pain, 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 pain. Loalenu. And what they discovered was something shocking that the patients who were the most angry at God were the patients who most often said they didn't believe in God. You say to me, uh, Rabbi Berman, that's illogical. And I will say to you that, that logic ends where pain begins. Okay, Meaning that sometimes when people are really angry at God, there's only two choices, to either be angry at God or to diss God altogether. I'm out of here. I'm finished with that. Okay? Yirmiyahu knows that when he shatters Batsyon's delusion about God, she's going to be very, he brought all this on me? And so he never, never in anywhere in that parrot, in parrot bet, he doesn't say a bad word about Yerushalayim. He doesn't say, yeah, well, you know, it's your fault. No, he never says that. He never says that. He sits down on the floor next to her and cries with her because, because she needs that. She needs the support. She needs to see that he's not critical of her. She needs to see that, she, that he is with him and he really cries genuinely. Yao is part of Amisrael. And then he says to her, you know what? I want you to approach to Chodesh Baruch. This is that famous passage. Why don't you unload your heart to Hashem? It's not clear exactly what he means by that. Does he mean that, that she should daven? Ask for chesed? Or perhaps protest? And where she takes it to is totally a place of protest. Anger. She expresses her anger. It's the psukim that we read before. When she ends that parak by saying, You killed my children on the day of your anger. You massacred them. You had no pity. That's the end of the parak. And it's remarkable. Like, wait a minute. Wait, this is the end of the parak? Being angry at God? There's no chuba? There's no censure of her for being angry? And I think the answer is, is that Yirmiyahu, the author of Eicha, they know very well. Just what I said before, you know, about those two guys at, at the conference. There are people in this world who've had a very hard time. And the place that leaves them vis-a-vis -vis God is one of two options. I will, be, I will be angry at him, or I will be finished with him. Given those two choices, Yirmiyahu wants Batsion to be angry with God. Better to be angry with God than to just God altogether. And so Yirmiyahu gives a hechsher to say, there are times when you're allowed to be angry at God, and it's good. It's good. When we're able to yell at each other, that's much better. I much prefer when my children yell at me than when they tune me out. Oh, that's the worst. Tune me out is the worst. Okay, Because when they yell at me, then they're still engaged, and they're able to express themselves. They're able to process their own feelings. Okay, That's what Yirmiyahu wants for Batsyon, to express her anger. That's why it's the end of Perikbet, not the end of the Megillah. Paragimel is then Aniha Gever, it's Yumiao saying, okay, I hear your pain, Batsyon. Now let me tell you something. I've also had a hard time with the Baruch. Let me tell you about my personal problems with the Kodesh Baruch. And then he tells his own story from Sefer Yumiao. You know, I was scorned and thrown into a pit, and, and uh, you know, people wanted to kill me. And I didn't understand why Hashem was doing this to me, because all I was doing was what he wanted me to do. So, like, what the hell is this, you know? And, and so he shows how he was also angry at God and how he turned it around. Okay. This is how the flow begins to work here. Amazing. That's really amazing. Uh, one, of, one of the aspirations of our podcast was to introduce our viewers to the nuance and beauty of Tanakh, something that yeah. um, is neglected 
unfortunately in some of the religious circles today. Um, and um, we really appreciate you coming in and, and providing us this unbelievable introduction to Lamentations. Um, I'm going to be honest, Eicha was one of those uh, books of Tanakh that it was very difficult for me to open up and 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 sure it's just sure it's one of those that you kind of would go through it and then kind of yeah. just put it aside and now I really want to go through it properly. I want to use your book as a guide and a, you know and a, it's really incredible. Thank you. Right. Let me just say I know the things I've been saying. You know, yes, God can hate Amisrim and he can be angry. Uh, a lot of people. That's like, what do you mean? I mean, I thought Hashem always loves us and there's always a breach. And, you know, it's especially when people on Tishavav learn Eicha Rabbah, okay, the Medrash to Eicha. Eicha Rabbah is totally a different world than Eicha itself. And Eicha Rabbah, HaKadosh Baruch Hu brings the Chorban and he's crying and crying and my children and oy, 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 and oy, oy, oy. But Eicha Rabbah is written much later. You know, Eicha is written in the heat of the moment. This is right after the Chorban. Amisel needs to learn the lesson. Eicha Rabbah, written by Chazal centuries later, are like, can't be that a Kaddish Baruch Hu is angry with us forever. And so a Kaddish Baruch Hu becomes a much more sympathetic figure in Eicha Rabbah than we have in Eicha itself. Interesting. So so what you're really expressing is that Chazal, there is there is a certain amount of, uh, I guess, I don't know what the word would be, context, that meaning the Chazal have their own context. But to, yep, that's to read, right. So, and, and Eicha when it's written has its own context. So you Correct. can absolutely a complete symmetry between the two. There's exactly. going to be everyone's own context exactly. to fill over into, exactly. into the commentary, which is fair. Um and yeah. um yep. yep, amazing. Amazing. Okay. Very good. So yeah, so it, again it's um uh commentary is called The Book of Lamentations. Sorry, no flowery title. Uh mm -hmm. put out uh in the it's a series called the New Cambridge Bible Commentary. And it's available online. In paperback, it's affordable. Uh, in hardcover, it's not. But that's why it's in paperback. Uh, and you can look it up. And uh, uh, if it's too late for this year's uh, this year's reading, then maybe next year, even though it's uh, Hashem Google already, for those that might still be interested in learning Eicha, they can uh, have, are uh, have you a comment. Are you planning on writing for any other book of Tanakh for the Cambridge, Cambridge series? Not at the present moment. I have other plans. I have other things I'm working on right now. I got but you. that's another, that'll, that'll be front of the podcast. I got okay. you. All your books are extremely insightful. Um, and just keep writing, keep doing what you're doing. We, you know, we you have you have readers that really appreciate it. And okay, terrific. We'll do this again with you. Yep, God willing. God willing. Yes, Hashem. Okay, and to the audience, you know, I know that uh, stimulating and, and controversial ideas are raised here, and uh, I say I salute to all of you for for thinking a little bit out of the box and wanting to get clear. Uh, clear and true answers. So, Yasha Koch to all of you, and we should be zochah that this should be the last, the last tish above that uh, that we sit in mourning. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. Thank you, Rabbi Berman. Okay. Very good. Meaningful fast. Okay. Thank you. Hey guys, thanks so much for tuning into the Judaism Demystified podcast. We really appreciate all your support and your feedback. If you want to help us grow the podcast, keep spreading the word, share it with your friends, family, or whoever you think would be interested. We also opened a Patreon, so you can become a patron, contribute any small amount you'd like, which would really help us grow the show. 
Um, our Patreon is www.patreon.com slash Judaism. Pretty easy to remember. Thank you again, and we hope to keep putting out great shows for you guys.